Hey, it's graduation season. Thousands of students across the U.S. are coming of age, either heading off to college or completing their time there and getting a stamp of approval from an institution. Those are rites of passage, but for some, they don't mean what they used to, ever since universities under pressure started investigating their historic connections to the international slave trade. MIT, here in Boston, is the most recent university to announce revelations. But their investigation represents an evolutionary step in universities acknowledging historical wrongs. Because MIT isn't confining its examination to the past. The current climate is directly linked to the history that we come from, and we can't separate the two. Instead of assuming that they're not connected, it's better to assume they are and find where that link is. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this is Otherhood. Yale, Brown, Harvard, Georgetown, they've all found that they directly benefited from slavery. Princeton once had a slave sale on campus. But all those places were founded in the 16 and 1700s. MIT didn't exist until two days before the Civil War. It didn't hold classes until after the war. And it was far in the liberal north. So you might not expect there's much to find when it comes to connections to slavery. But MIT professor Craig Wilder just saw that as an opportunity to dig deeper. He's the leading national expert on universities' connections to slavery. And for the sake of keeping things standard in this story, I'll mention he's black. Wilder crafted MIT's approach to its investigation. But this story isn't about him. It's about the untrained undergrads he empowered to lead MIT's investigation as part of an ongoing class under the direction of T.A. Claire Kim. And I remember Craig, he's very witty with his one-liners, but he also is very frightening in that sense because you just feel the toll on you. Um, So I remember him telling me, Claire, it's your class. You can design it however you want. I thought, oh no, (laughs) what am I supposed to do? A small group of us are down the hall from the MIT archives in a conference room with a high ceiling and one wall of windows looking out onto a green courtyard. The room we're in right now, this round table, is the classroom um, that we met regularly in. Kim's a postdoc studying the history of math, and she's the daughter of Korean immigrants. She decided the new MIT and slavery class had to begin with what was already known of MIT's history. The standard narrative that gets told about MIT is it's, you know, this exceptional institution of progress and innovation. The official narratives tends to get told as a history of firsts that are primarily white men. It doesn't help that we're sitting in a room where there's a portrait of Albert Einstein who had never held a position here at MIT, but that kind of, the solitary figure reinscribes that. And so we started off with problematizing that from the beginning. Anyone could have signed up for the class that first semester, fall 2017. Just four students did. One was freshman Kelvin Green II. He's black and was raised in Texas and Virginia. In one of the classes, Professor Wilder told us, I guess that we would be meeting with President Rife. It would be culminating in that. And a lot of us kind of freaked out and like, oh, what's going to happen and things like that. But eventually buckled down like we can do this. And, And in that way, we depended on each other a lot. The four students chose not to look for proof that MIT's early leaders owned slaves. Instead, they searched for evidence of slavery's harmful echoes through MIT's history. 
Green looked through the school newspaper and yearbook. He found images of white students wearing Ku Klux Klan clothing. Those kind of surprised me because I was like, this isn't in the South, um, this isn't necessarily the culture of the North. But they found MIT, in a way, was a product of slavery. It was created because of an industrial revolution spurred by machines like the cotton gin, a device that increased demand for slave labor. Technology itself was a new concept that wasn't taught many places. Charlotte Minsky, a white sophomore from Massachusetts, found many students from the South came to MIT to learn about industries that were booming because of slavery. MIT was a point at which the South and the North interacted, and at which there was a flow of students coming from the South, going back into the South. That fact is important for breaking down this perception that the North, by virtue of its isolation, is somehow exempt from all the implications of slavery, which is perceived as sort of a Southern institution. The only senior in the class, Alicia Alexander, looked through early course lists and descriptions. She's from Florida, is black, and one of her grandfather's grandfathers was a slave. She found things like a class that taught eugenics and used a textbook that described black people as dim-witted and brutish. Like, I'm part of this institution now. And whether I like it or not, when I move into the world, the things that people say about MIT will be things that are also associated with me. And so to find these things and then to know that this was kind of the first time that these questions were being asked was really jarring to me. The further they got into the semester, the more Alexander saw examples in her own life that could be questioned by a future researcher like herself. <laughs> there was a, I had an incident with my, um, with my classmates. It happened in one of her electrical engineering classes. They were doing a project on Bluetooth, technology created in the 1990s using terminology called the master-slave concept. So if you have, um, for example, a speaker and your phone, your phone in that case has a master chip and the speaker has a slave chip and your master tells the slave what to do. Alexander didn't know that when the project started. She missed a meeting where her team discussed it. So I show up to the next meeting and they go, okay, Alicia, you're gonna be on the slave team. And I was like, I'm sorry? Someone explained it to her, and she asked why they hadn't changed the terminology because of, for example, how it resonated for descendants of slaves. Like, we, like because the slave component was a lesser component, it was getting the reused parts. It was getting the more degraded pieces. And no one seemed to understand the issue that I was having. And it was very, oh goodness, that was so... I was overreacting. That's what, I was overreacting. She says that's what other students told her. I didn't want to bring it up to the instructors yet because I didn't want to cause a ruckus. And obviously, if there was an issue, everyone would know it was me, and then now I'm cut out of team dynamics. After combining one of my teammates, she goes, I kind of see what you mean. And then she brings it up in the meeting, and they go, oh, that's a fair point, we'll change it. And I was livid. It was a powerful example for Alexander and her fellow students in the MIT slavery class of how science is still influenced by history. 
and how there's a resistance to change that. They began to see MIT differently, and the small class started to feel like a support group. Being aware that science is indeed not absolute and not unaffected by personal biases can only make it better because what a scientist does is ask questions based on their environment. And if what their environment is telling them is that this brand of people are inferior, they will look to science to prove that. While the students were going on a journey of sorts and understanding more about how MIT is connected to its past, archivist Nora Murphy, who was helping them find materials in the archives, she was pursuing her own line of investigation. She was trying to find out if MIT's founder, William Barton Rogers, owned slaves. So, this is the um, reading room for the Institute Archives, okay. special collections. Sorry, tomorrow is trash pickup, so it's trash here. Most of the old documents are kept in a warehouse, so this reading room doesn't have the loose papers and overstuffed bookshelves you might imagine in an archives. It's mostly gleaming wood tables with desk lamps. Murphy pulls out boxes of documents to demonstrate the trail she followed to eventually discover that Rogers had six slaves before moving to Massachusetts. One of them might have been named Levi, because that name comes up in some letters. But there's no definitive proof so far. I don't know what happens to Levi. I don't know where Levi enters Roger's life, and I don't know their relationship. So I did begin to look through some of Roger's correspondence. There's nothing in it that says this is an enslaved person. Once Murphy's discovery came out, directly linking MIT to the strict definition of slavery, that kind of overshadowed everything else, to the chagrin of the students. People outside the class, mostly, have really focused in on those revelations. This is then-sophomore Charlotte Minsky. It's very easy to confine slavery to like, what we perceive as this just like institution that's in its bubble, that's bad, but, you know, is its own thing. But it's not. I mean, it reaches tendrils into every aspect of America, and that means race, that means labor, that means power structures, I mean, it's everything. And Minsky felt particularly responsible for making sure that message got across at an event in February 2018, when she and her classmates stood up before the most powerful leaders at MIT to present their findings. I want to introduce the students who actually did the work. Alicia, Mahi, Kelvin, and Charlotte, please join me on stage. I was the only student in the class in the fall who's not a person of color. And so I get to not be pushed into this narrative of you only care about this because you are a person of color. This isn't black history. This isn't Native American history. This is American history. I think one of the really significant things about us as the four students who were doing this is that there's nothing special about us. It could have been any undergrads. There is no excuse for this history not having been done before this. And I believe the work of this class about our past is also important to the present. President L. Raphael Reif, who's originally from Venezuela, started MIT's investigation. And the only thing he said about why he started it is that he got a question about MIT's connections to slavery. And he thought he knew the answer, but he realized he didn't know for sure. If in this case, we have the courage to look at even the most unflattering and disturbing parts of our history, I believe we have a much better chance of approaching the present and the future with humility and self-awareness too. Mm -hmm.
The students were proud of themselves after that event. They felt like they'd been hurt. But some people pushed back. I mean, as soon as our work was publicized, there were comments. One 1968 MIT graduate even wrote an editorial in the university newspaper, The Tech. He argued the MIT and slavery classes investigation was self-destructive. He said responsibility for slavery lies with people who are long dead, and we shouldn't judge them or MIT's past by today's morals. People tend to feel strongly about things that they perceive as potential criticisms to the way they live their own lives. A few weeks ago, Charlotte Minsky and classmate Mahalakshmi Alango published a long response in the tech, arguing the class isn't about placing blame. It's about a responsibility to find facts. And they wrote that separating today's morality from historical morality was just a way to avoid confrontation and discomfort. Alicia Alexander smiles, reading a passage. I just loved this. I love that they made it highlighted that we compound the horrors of slavery by draping them in a veil of ignorance, but it is not our founding fathers and forebears we protect by portraying this history as anachronistic. It is only ourselves. This was so Mahi and Charlotte. It's so great. It's so good. But victories like that don't make confronting the past any easier. As the search continues through the archives, uncomfortable things keep coming to light. I was there as archivist Nora Murphy showed Alexander something she'd found, a program from a big production put on by MIT athletic clubs in 1899. All of a sudden it occurred to me I'd look around to see if we had the minstrel show. Mm -hmm. So I found a program from the show. Yeah, you ready? Okay. So that's the athletes and... She turns the page. um, In here we found there's a picture from the production of all of the performers in blackface. It's a shocking picture of a dozen or so young white athletes in costumes with blackened bodies. A few minutes later, Alexander says she has to go. These moments of coming to terms with MIT's past are emotional, Kelvin Green says, because they resonate so strongly with things that are happening today. Things that Green and other members of the Black Student Union are trying to track and document. There are a lot of current MIT students that are facing really hard times, and it's not necessarily linked to their academics or their professional life, but there's a lot of social aspects of MIT that can cause students to feel isolated and not included. A lot of those may have to do with things that professors may have said to students. It may have to do with certain approaches that administration takes to problem solve that aren't really inclusive. and so. We also have to ask ourselves, is there anything that we're doing now that's falling into the exact same trap of excluding people? That might be the result of the MIT and slavery course because of the precedent the students in the first class set. But looking back now, Green thinks President Reif probably had a more tactical reason for investigating MIT's past. There have been schools, peer schools, delving into this history. And not only delving into it, but some people calling them out on the fact that they do have this history before they got a chance to do it on their own. So I think, if anything, it was very strategic for MIT to do this project before anyone put in the press that we have this history. It's just a hypothesis. But Green thinks MIT was trying to dictate the narrative, and that's okay with him and his classmates just as long as MIT's narrative includes confronting the ways history still impacts students today.
episode brought together lots of the themes we've been exploring the last several months. So maybe it's appropriate that it's the last one of the season. And possibly the last episode for a while. I'm going back to radio, taking a bigger role at PRI's The World, the show where I'm based. And Otherhood isn't going away, but episodes might be more intermittent. That's not supposed to be a great thing to do with a podcast. Conventional wisdom is that listeners like regularity. But I just don't want to let Otherhood go. I'll be working on the same subjects, though, so please keep sending me ideas. I'm at Rupa Shinoy on Twitter and Otherhoods on Facebook. For now, thank you so much for listening. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and this has been Otherhood from PRI. <laughs>